Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. We're going to put a bow on USC Spring Football 2019. we got Keely Yor in studio with me. What's up, Keely? We got Dan Weber on the line. How are you doing, Dan? Pretty good. Very good. Enjoy. Uh, got a weekend away. Thank you guys for allowing me to, to do that. And uh, now it is uh, time to look back on uh, on spring football. Yeah. It's got to be fun to do. All 15 practices are gone, so we're going to kind of recap what we saw. Some of the position battles, some interesting topics we have to talk about. And, of course, your questions. If you have any questions for us, podcast at Football. Dot com or you can call or text us. The number is 424-254-9141. Leave us a voicemail if you'd like to, you know, give us some positive feedback. Say, call it and say, hey, we love the show. Or, you know, if you had some negative feedback, hey, what's Keely doing on the show? You know, if you have a critical, like you're probably not wow. critical. <laughs> Sorry, Keely, just kidding. <laughs> Run over. We're just kidding. You know, any kind of feedback at all, you can do that there. But, of course, your questions are great. And uh, speaking of feedback, go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast. Uh, leave us a positive review, uh, five-star rating, all that stuff is great. And tell your friends. If you have USC football friends, family, whatever, let them know about the Peristyle Podcast. This will be our 12th football season covering the USC Trojans. So we appreciate you know telling a friend or two. Helps grow the show and helps us out tremendously. Thank you for that. And before we jump into everything, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. They've been great to us. Over the last couple of years, if you did make it down to campus for the spring showcase uh, a week and a half ago or so, you maybe walked over to the USC Village and checked out the cool Trader Joe's they have over there. Uh, I've been trying, you know, going lately, I've been looking for new snacks, Keely, to get at. So I tried the Thai lime chili and cashews. Those are pretty good. So they're like, they're they're kind of like crack. They're addicting because if you like (laughs) a little bit of spice... So the cashews are great. They're just like an easy nut to eat and you just pop them in. I'm not a big high maintenance guy like sunflower seeds. I don't want to break open something to eat everything. I guess it makes you eat slower. But uh, the Thai lime and chili cashews are awesome. And I also did the banana chips. Those are great too. But man, the, the Thai lime and chili cashews, I just can't stop. I got to stop. I got to like seal the top because otherwise. And then you can need something to drink afterwards. But I got to seal the top because they're so good. Was that on the box? Kind of like crack? Is that the tagline? No, that's, that's me. Like, uh, yeah, they're probably not happy that that's what I compared it to. But that's no, really probably not. But it's really like you want to eat more and more of them. I don't know if you had those, Dan. Or... Uh, I, I'm good to go with just plain old cashews. Okay. They're, I don't even need need anything to, to go with my cashews. And like you said, uh, I like it where you don't have to absolutely drink a bunch of stuff after you eat them. <laughs> just <laughs> eat the cashews and move on. Yeah. They get the little spice to them. They're not too super spicy, but they make you like, oh, I had some, I have these little snacks, you know, but I, I like to, you know, something that's not like terrible for you. So there's some really good snacks there that maybe aren't as healthy that I True. probably shouldn't be eating right now. But, um, so I try to get those, I don't know how healthy they are. So tell if, if you guys are nutritionists out there, like no cashews, the worst nut you can eat. I don't know. I'm not an idea, but, um, all right. Well, spring football is over. It's kind of sad. It's six weeks goes by. Uh, fairly quickly, we didn't really get a 
We didn't get a full-on spring game. We got the spring showcase a week before practice ended. Um, I mean, maybe we'll start off with you, Dan, just kind of get your initial takeaways from what you saw over the, the 15 or 14 because you went out of town the last week. The, the, you missed one, but uh, the practices that you saw. Well, I mean, I, I do think, uh, you know, a la Trader Joe's, I think uh, for USC football, this was good marketing because it left you – kind of wanting more and you know we didn't get a spring game but i do think people are kind of interested now as to what's going to happen when we you know get to the end of august and september and and you know that there is some sense of eh, maybe there is you know a little light at the end of this tunnel as opposed to last year and you know after practice one i'm not sure we wanted practice two you know i mean it was one of those uh uh-oh this is going to be a hard slog and you didn't get that feeling at all. Uh, I, a lot of that was the players, I think, responding well to what they were being asked to do. The fact that, you know, on practice one, they looked like they knew what they were doing and that they were able to do it and look like they wanted to try to, you know, get better in practice two and three. And that, that becomes kind of contagious. So I think, you know, if that carries through uh, to the summer and then, you know, see what happens in the fall but uh i'm you know it's obvious i think you know from instant analysis and everything we wrote that i'm pretty optimistic about um how the transition occurred i think uh graham harrell is just you know is is terrific you know at what he does and how he does it and how he sees uh you know the offense working with with the players he's got to work with um i think clay did a really good job of stepping back and and focusing on the things that it's good for you know for clay to be focused on and i thought the staff worked together well i thought there was a lot of a lot of coaching going on a lot of you know respect with you know between the players and the coaches and uh i thought they got better i thought uh you know i thought they're more athletic they're a little you know they're in better shape in terms of the guys that needed to lose 10 pounds lost 10 pounds the guys that needed to you know, pick up some weight, you know, did. Uh, so I think in the positive, uh, you know, it's a step, you know, it's a stepping stone. Uh, and I'm not sure everybody was, you know, convinced that, you know, taking that first step would, would come as smoothly as it did. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, there really weren't many penalties. The fact that they stuck with the uh, commitment that they would have officials at every practice, in Pac-12 officials, uh, I think it was really well done. I think it, it develops kind of a working relationship between USC and the Pac-12 officials who are going to be calling their games. It gives the Pac-12 officials a chance to work. Uh, and there's really no other way you can work on your craft if you're an official. So I think it was good for the Pac-12 officials. I think it's good for USC. Uh, there weren't many penalties. Uh, I just think in general they did what they said they were going to do. And that's a good thing. Uh, so, so I'm, you know, fairly optimistic from that standpoint. Keely, what about you? You were out there most of the time as well. Uh, any kind of big takeaways you had from USC spring ball? I think it was a good, I'm going to keep the analogy going. I think it was a good snack. I think it got the bad Ooh. taste of 2018 out of fans' mouths, mm. but a snack leaves you wanting more. And I think that's what USC spring camp did. It, it, it showed you what this offense is going to be under Graham Harrell. It showed you 
who Graham Harrell is and how impressive he is so far. I think the coaching staff is elevated and there's more chemistry, I think. Um, but there's so many more questions left and things that need to be resolved and that we'll see in fall camp. You know, who's going to be the starting quarterback? We still don't know that. Um, what is the secondary going to look like? Are the fall additions going to help boost that depth or is it just, or is it going to be mainly the guys we saw in spring? Um how is the offensive line going to do with their new wider splits? Are they going to be able to run the ball? I think there's still a lot of questions to be uh, filled out that we haven't really had the answer to yet. But I think this was a good narrative change from what we were talking about prior to spring camp. So I think it's positive step forward, but I still have questions about this team. Yeah. I love the snack. Uh, analogy. I think, that was I good. Think, yeah, that was, that was great. Uh, I do think, I think uh, we know who the quarterback's going to be. We should know who the quarterback's going to be. Other than that, uh, uh, I think all the all the questions are on the money. I mean, I think it's again great marketing, uh, and it's great uh, to send the four quarterbacks off for the summer. Uh, you know, with an idea that you know they're going to work at it, that they're everybody really got equal opportunities in in the spring. I just think it'd be the it'd be the biggest upset in the world if, if it's not JT Daniels. I, 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 it's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that you could go away from uh, a full year of the kind of tough scrimmage, you know, tough uh, experience that he had to go through last year with such a, an undisciplined and unformed and, and <laughs> very uh, uh, not well thought out offense. And then you get to where, you know, you've got an offense that's really built, you know, to his skill set. You know, he's the one guy that can throw the ball and the money to the one sideline and to the other sideline, back-to-back, and throw the deep ball, you know, on the money. So, uh, you know, maybe, I guess there's always, you know, you never want to say never, but that would be the, the real, you know, shocker of all time if it's not JT. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I think it's going to be JT too, but it's still something that was just not answered or decided this spring and it's still going to be something that lingers in the fall camp i don't know if we want to read into this at all but tim Reno did tweet out a picture of the offensive linemen with their dads but there was also another player there that happened to be there mm. with his father jt daniels and his dad was also in the photo so do we read into <laughs> that that the one non-offensive lineman in that group is a quarterback yeah, like if you're betting on which quarterback you think is going to start and you're betting on JT Daniels, I'd feel pretty darn good about seeing that photo. Like, yeah, that's... Uh, Did Jack Sears take the photo? Like, yeah. were they not... Could they have prior, like, commitments? And JT's dad's, you know, he was there, too. Yeah. So it's uh, they were down here at the beach. Probably Redondo. I didn't, I didn't see exactly where it was. I think it was a Redondo. You should have been staking them out, Ryan. But Drevno's a South Bay guy, you okay. know, so he comes down, He, you know, he, he's probably in Torrance or somewhere. He's around here somewhere, but I, I think it was, like, a Redondo... Uh, near Knob Hill or something, um, but yeah, that's that was. I don't know what you thought about that, Dan, but that that seemed like a good, that a positive sign if you're a JT Daniels fan. Well, you know, and there was another one. Uh, I think the day that uh, Graham Harrell gave a quick rundown of all four quarterbacks, and he got he started with Jack Sears and talked about his athleticism and his arm and you know what have you. Then he went to uh, you know uh, Keaton Slovis, I guess he went second, the freshman who's you know, doing so well, he mentioned the fact that, well, he doesn't have anything to unlearn, but he's really doing a, doing a nice job as a, you know, early entry freshman. And then Matt Fink, emotional leader and that. And then he got to JT 
And instead of kind of describing JT, he started coaching him up. The kind of thing you used to see Phil Jackson do in the NBA, where he would tell the media what he wanted his players to do. And that's what he did with JT. He, he gave you the don't want him overthinking, don't want him overanalyzing. He's so smart. But of the four quarterbacks, the one that he coached in that commentary was JT. The one that he was trying to get ready to play was JT. The other three, he was describing them. JT, he was coaching him. I think, again, that is a little, just a little kind of a hint as to where this is going. Um, if you guys listen, I mean, you're listening to the Peristyle Podcast. We have multiple shows every week. I did one yesterday with the coach Harvey Hyde, and uh, it's probably sparked the biggest thread we've had for a Harvey Hyde podcast on the Peristyle <laughs> because the coach came out and said uh, that he feels if the, there was a game tomorrow, he would start Jack Sears. And he had said, he'd, you know, <laughs> talk to some people around. And in his opinion, he feels that a lot of the players, you know, the players know, and I agree with this. Like if you name somebody that's not the best to start a position, the players know they're like that. He's not the best, but for whatever reason he's getting, and that happens, you know, that happens in sports. Yep. Um, he felt that the players would pick the majority of players would have picked Jack Sears. He likes the leadership style. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that, Dan, but also the, that a lot of the, there's a lot of, um, devout Jack Sears disciples out there that just feel like, I think it's more of a, how much they hated the offense last year. And they just associate JT Daniels with the offense. Cause he was the one running it most of the time. That's what I really feel it's coming from. But for the Jack Sears, the people that really love him, they talk about the athleticism and things break down. He can run. One of the things that, that Coach Harvey Hyde brought up, and I wanted to get you guys were at more practices than me. Um, did you guys see them run? Like, were there designed quarterback runs, or was it just really never even a part of the offense? And if that's the case, that seems like that takes a little bit away from some of the Jack Sears talent. But get your thoughts on that, Dan. Well, I, I think we when that question by a, sort of a Jack Sears proponent in the media <laughs> asked Graham that a few times during the uh, spring and Graham said, you know, quarterbacks take enough hits. I don't want them taking any hits. So this, you know, and he said, sure. You know, if you can run out of trouble, that's, that's a good thing. But, you know, not being the guy who, you know, going to you know, run out of trouble uh, isn't a deal breaker at all. I mean, he tried to say it in about three or four different ways that, that's really not a high consideration. I mean, think about what that means. It means we are so convinced that our offensive line is going to break down and our scheme isn't good enough that we need a quarterback who can, you know, escape. And obviously that was the case for two years with Sam Darnold. Year one, he was pretty good escaping. He was healthy. Uh, and, you know, he made things happen because they couldn't get him with the first rush, and he, he'd turn upfield, and then USC would have an advantage, and, you know, with Deontay Burnett especially, uh, finding the open spot, and that was the offense. It wasn't that they were always executing the play. I mean, the play that, you know, basically wins the Rose Bowl is a play that, you know, Sam and Deontay just, you know, nothing of that play was supposed to happen the way it did. Uh, and so if you're saying, yeah, we got to go back to that where 
we, we can't really block you. The plays aren't really that well thought out. But if we've got a quarterback that you can't get down and he can throw it on the money to a wide receiver who's going to exactly know where he's going to be able to get open, you know, maybe that's what you want to go to. But even in the second year of Sam Arnold, when teams knew what they – and Sam was a little, you know, injured, and they knew what they weren't going to let him do – made life really difficult for Sam Darnold. So, and Jack Sears, you know, might you know, come from San Clemente, but I wouldn't even ask Sam Darnold to be Sam Darnold if he came back right now. I'd like, you know, you'd like to go in a different direction to make it a little bit easier on the quarterback. So I just don't know that athleticism and his capability in this offense really matter all that much. I think, uh, you know, the ability to see the field, the ability to, you know, recognize what's open uh, immediately and the ability to, you know, to deliver the ball, uh, you know, quickly. Uh, everything's got to go quickly. You know, you're talking about a two and a half seconds so that, uh, you know, the pass rush isn't going to limit you all that much. I don't think, uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, that athleticism and escapability is, is really, a, a, you know, it's the ability to be precise. It's the ability you know, to be on time, on target. Uh, all of those things, I think, play to JT's strengths. And I do think it was completely unfair uh, for how some people have, uh, you know, reacted to JT's year last year. I mean, I've told people, it, it, JT, if you saw him in the, uh, you know, the All-American game, clearly at that point in that game was a better, better quarterback than, than Trevor Lawrence. Had JT gone to Clemson and Trevor Lawrence come to USC last year, I think everything slipped. I mean, how would it, how, I would have loved to have seen Trevor Lawrence survive, you know, in that offense the way it went last year for USC. And I think JT would have had a, you know, fabulous year at Clemson. So I just think people just, it, it, it kind of, I think it, it's just unfair for what they've, uh, you know, just because their hopes, got, you know, destroyed last year, and JT was the quarterback that, you know, they had built their hopes up on. I just think that's kind of silly, but that's just me. Yeah, I think that's good points there. It's uh, I I feel pretty much the same way. I mean, I think Trevor Lawrence, when I we saw the All-Star game, like it's not like Trevor Lawrence was miles better. Like JT looked actually better uh, in that time. Then that doesn't mean, you know, it's an All-Star game, it's different, whatever. But I feel like you wouldn't see the same Trevor Lawrence if you put him on USC's team last year. And if you put JT at Clemson, he'd look a hell of a lot better. So I think now you're going to all have a good system to use and we'll see which quarterback ends up, you know, doing the best uh, this fall. So uh, lots of quarterback talk, which is understandable. Do we want to jump into questions, Keely, or any other topics you think we should uh, tackle before? Sure. I just have one more thing to add about Jack Sears. Oh, okay. I just for me, I don't think Jack Sears has been consistent enough in the last year that we've seen him to be worthy of being a starting quarterback. You know, he's had his opportunity. I don't really understand why people think he hasn't. He's had his opportunity last spring. It's an even slate this spring, and he's done better this spring, but it's just I think he had his best day on Saturday, but I just don't think he's been consistent enough, and that's something you want from a quarterback. If anything, I think Matt, or Matt Fink has made – more strides this spring than Sears has. So I don't know. I, I differ with Harvey on that one. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, I think they're all better, and you're exactly right. Matt has uh, come farther uh, faster this spring, uh, you know, than Jack. And, and yet Jack is always going to have those, you know, skills that just pop out, you know, and you say, Ooh, you know, that wasn't, but I just don't think maybe, you know, there may be another place, for example, where in another offense, where if you just decided to go heavy with, uh, you know, the quarterback option, uh, and, and really put pressure on people and, and, and we're committed to, yeah, he's going to take some shots, but, we're going to, you know, move down the field with, uh, with him running the ball fairly, uh, you know, regularly, then it's a different story. Uh, even, even then though, the, you know, the consistency, I think is always, uh, you know, the on time on target ability of your quarterback matters more than anything. And, uh, I think, you know, I think people don't, don't seem to understand that. All right. You would do some questions, Keely? Sure. We have a question from, Sorry, just also we have a question from. Um, sorry, hold on. Chloe just added like three questions. Oh, sorry. And so I totally just missed what's <laughs> happening. We have a, a so just behind the scenes, we have a Google Doc, and then our our intern Chloe helps uh, update the questions and put stuff in there. And sometimes it's happening live while you're like you're about to read a question, and she's like inserting a new one. Yeah, I literally had my question highlighted, and then it was just gone in like five <laughs> seconds. So okay, I found it. Um, Ryan and Dan, Eric and Duck Country says next year will opposing coaches start calling this team a well-coached team before calling it a talented team? Oh, that's Thanks, a as always. really good question. Yep. I, I think it's going to take a little while for that to happen because talent, it's always talented team. Like it, it, but even if it's well-coached, I think it's, it's like hard to like break that barrier, but I don't, what do you think, Dan? I think again, here's where I really like the schedule. Because you got a chance, you're going against, let's say, you start the year with two programs that are, you know, now obviously with Jeff Tedford at Fresno and, and, and obviously David Shaw at Stanford, you got a chance to say, hey, you know, here's the execution, here's how we execute, here's how you do, here are the penalties, here are, you, you've got a chance, that's why I really like the schedule next year, you've got a chance to show people, oh, wait a minute, this is a different USC team. Look at this. So I think they, you know, they'll probably always maybe say, you know, this is the the new look. Yeah, you know, if they can get it going. I mean, you know, this is why, you know, terrific, terrific opportunity to show they're not that team that they've been the last few years, and uh, and we'll see. But uh, but I think that's the impact of having those, you know, couple of games to to get the season started. You know, you can prove it that, that you are now a well-coached team that is doing things that are really smart uh, for your personnel, and, it, and you can do them, and you can do them without penalties and without uh, you know screwing up. And uh, so I think I think it actually could happen fairly quickly uh, if they get it going. Here's the thing. I think it's sort of like Michael Jordan winning the MVP. Like, yeah, well, you already know he's the best or whatever. Like Phil Jackson, give him the you know coach of the year or whatever. Like you already know that. You already know this is a really talented team. So I think they have to go above and beyond the coaching to overcome that because you already know, okay, they have the best players. Um, so they would have to like be blowing people out. I would almost be like, if you want to say this is a really well-coached team, Alabama's super talented and they make the playoffs every year. So you say it's a well-coached team. 
I think USC would have to do like they can't USC can't go nine and three. It's gonna be a it's going to be a better coach team. I think that's a hundred percent gonna happen. But are people gonna be talking about being a well coached team? It, I mean, you almost would have to finish like eleven and one or something and make the playoff. And they're like, yeah, wow, they were really well coached. I I don't think going nine and three and like winning the South is enough to say like. This team, this team was more talented than everyone else, and and they're well coached. You know what I mean? Like I, I think it's just the expectations are so high because you know the talent is there. I think the it's a two step process. The first step process will be they are no longer a really badly coached team. <laughs> yes, <laughs> then you true. get to <laughs> they're a, a well coached team. Yeah, I mean like, that's the first step. Okay, right. And I, I agree. I think they're going to take that step, but it, to go to the the next level of well, this is a really well coached team. It's like they, they got to do some ex- extraordinary things. I would I would guess, but who knows? I don't. Know. So we have a question from Dominic from South Bend. He says this question is for Dan. Other than calling the plays in practice and on game day, what other responsibilities does Clancy Pendergast has as a defensive coordinator? Thanks and fight on. Well, I mean, I, the design of practice. I think the way they you know uh, we're seeing more. Uh, the way they divide up uh, uh, who coaches what players doing what things and, and the way they, you know, work with, uh, you know, the linebackers. And sometimes they're working with the, the defensive end. Sometimes they're working, you know, with all the linebackers as a group. And who, who you know, is responsible for, you know, when does Johnny Nansen, you know, uh, take them with, uh, you know, uh, Michael Hutchings, for example, and and who you know how to you know how does Clancy figure into all of that and and, and what kind of drills are they do and you know how much form tackling they do, how much uh, you know read and react and stop and start, and all the things that you know that they cho- you know they choose to do, you know I think they they look much more, uh, the the stuff they're doing makes a lot more sense I think right now, for, and they are doing more individual stuff. I think that's one of the things that you know they built into practice. I think Clancy would you know be a be a part of that. And now you've got more individual time. What do you devote that time to? And you know how do you you know how do you break you know how do you break everything down? And and I think I mean we we don't you know and, and they're never going to let us sit in on the on the meeting. So we're not going to know absolutely you know for absolute certain how it breaks down, but. But I think almost everything they do on defense goes through Clancy. I mean, I just don't think Clay has not been, you know, that hands-on at all on defense, although he keeps pushing, and I think he's, you know, he's correct, to uh, get it as simple as possible and get the best athletes on the field playing aggressively and not be so, you know, dependent on it's going to take three or four years to learn this defense. It can't. You don't have three or four years. You've got to get, you know, those, you know, if you're going to recruit kids like Pala EA and uh, Talanoa, they have to be on the field uh, when the season starts. You have to figure out uh, defensively uh, what you're going to do uh, in order to, you know, for them to really make an impact and, and for them to be able to contribute right away. Uh, so I think that's a big part of what Clancy's doing, you know, has to do is figure, figure all those things out. But, uh, uh, you know, I think Clancy's essentially, uh, an on-campus recruiter mostly. I think we saw him a little more activity, uh, in this off season, uh, you know, on home visits and things like that. But, uh, 
but in terms of that, I think uh, he's more of a, he's more of the, you know, I'll talk to him when they get to campus. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. All, all your assessments there. I think at the very end, uh, he's gone out on the road a little bit, but for the, like for the next six weeks or so, uh, the May evaluation period, I think they still call it that, you know, where coaches can kind of go out on the road and check out prospects. Don't expect to see Clancy out. Like he, there was some social media stuff with him, uh, around signing day, but he's not really involved this kind of stuff. So, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's a very active recruiter, but he's certainly, like Dan said, he runs the defense. It's the NFL mindset. When you come from the NFL, you're not really yeah. in tune to wooing 17, 18-year-old kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's not in the DNA. I mean, it takes something. Like, there's certain coaches. Like, Pete Carroll loved doing that. You know, there's Nick Saban loves, you know, there's coaches that they live, breathe recruiting. It's like a competitive thing. And there's other coaches that really don't want to have anything to do with it. It's a yeah. necessary evil, yeah. you know. Have- yeah, I think they could survive the uh, NFL mindset there if everybody else really does it. I think where the NFL mindset kind of has to go away is in the complexity and, and the ability of, you know, you don't have them for 40 hours a week and they're not 10-year veterans. You got them, you know, for 20 hours a week and you got 18, 19-year-old kids. So I think that's the, the area they need Clancy to really, uh, you know, concentrate on and figure out how to – how to get the most out of, uh, and, and I guess different teams are different. Some, you know, places you go, the coordinators really don't recruit. Other places, the coordinators are, you know, big part, big, big, big part of it. And I, I think you can, either one can work, but everything else has to work around it. We have a question from John in Oakland. He says, during the actual season, do you think that Coach Harrell and Coach Helton will stick with one starting quarterback or go with a QB that has looked the best during the practices leading up to the game? On the Friday before each game, will they release an honest two deep based on the week's practice that includes quarterbacks? For example, say the JT starts the season and wins the first two games. However, at the beginning of week three, he gets the stomach flu and is not that sharp during the the practice week will Harold and Helton go with the best QB at the end of Friday's practice or with JT fight on John in Oakland. Uh, it's a really good question. They're going to go with JT. Uh, you almost can't, I mean, as much as you like the idea of, uh, you know, what Clay said about they're really going to compete and there will be competition and there has to be competition at every position. Quarterback is really different. Uh, you, you almost, and I think uh, Graham gave it away a little bit also when he said in terms of um, when the fall gets here, the, the starting quarterback is going to make it clear, uh, and it won't be that close, and he'll get most of the reps, uh, which is absolutely true. It has to be that way. You, there is no other way you can do that. So the guy that's getting most of the reps, it's almost impossible to be the guy that's getting most of the reps in practice to get beat out in practice. It just—it's it, it, not going to. I mean, there there are occasions, and obviously, you know, Clemson had you know a situation like that. Other schools, you know, have have those things happen, but it's just not the norm. I just I don't know how that's going to work uh, with the quarterback. It'd be a that'd be a shocker if uh, uh, this offense. The other quarterbacks have a chance, though. I mean, this is one of the and, – and I think they, they made that clear at North Texas last year with three different quarterbacks with injuries and all of that, and they kept chugging along, you know, offensively. So I don't think it's quite the, you know, the big adjustment, it, you know, would be at a, you know, the pro-style offense or whatever when there's all kinds of 
adjustments and calls and everything that have to be made. But uh, uh, in a playbook that's, you know, like an old telephone book, but um, um, I don't think that's going to apply. That Friday, two deep depth chart, you know, listed. I don't think that applies to the quarterback. Yeah, and USC's traditionally not really been um, unless the quarterback's out. Like they don't really replace the quarterback. Um, if you remember John David Booty like breaking his finger, and you have an NFL quarterback on the bench, Mark Sanchez, and <laughs> reluctant to put him in. Like it's, for whatever reason, it's just not been a place where you could swap out quarterbacks. Like you make a quarterback decision unless he's like out, out for an injury, like you stick with him, And that's, that's just kind of the way, I mean, the only exception was replacing uh, Max Brown with Sam Darnold. Like that was the only time that we've not seen that happen. So it's just not, there's not really a precedent there for something like that uh, for John's uh, question, I guess. Yeah. It's just, I don't even think the team would, it would be hard to be, if you really didn't know until Friday who your quarterback was going to be, you know, I think that's one of those where, what do they say? If you, if you got two quarterbacks, you really got none. If you're thinking, uh, there are rare instances where, where it works, where you've got several quarterbacks that you're juggling and it just, that's just not the way you can go. Uh, unfortunately for the other quarterbacks, which is why I guess the numbers, of uh, quarterback transfers has skyrocketed. You know, it's like it's like the basketball numbers of kids transferring. And if you're a quarterback, I mean, you know, the, you know if you're the third offensive tackle, there's a probably pretty good chance you could play, or maybe you can beat that guy out. If you're the second quarterback, it's a lot harder to be be able to beat that guy out. It just is. Yeah, and what you know, the one thing I would say, there's a lot of debate, and there's people that are just you know they they you know, plant their flag. Like, this is what I think. And uh, it's crazy. I think now you have a competent, uh, wealth, you know, smart offensive coordinator. We all think on this podcast, that JT Daniels is going to win the job. If for whatever reason, Graham Harrell comes at the middle of fall camp, and goes, Jack Sears is my guy. And that was his decision. There wasn't any like political thing. He just feels like he can run the offense the best. I'd be like, I didn't think that, but if he does, then he's the best because like, I would trust what he says, you know, and if he picks JT Dale, whoever it is, I feel like now you have an offensive coordinator. Like as long as he's allowed to make his own call, I think he's, he knows more about, you know, more about offense than I'll ever. I mean, he forgot more about that. I'll ever know. So I would trust whatever he says, just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think the other thing, I mean, I remember I go all the way back to the Matt liner, uh, Ascension days. And I think there were four quarterbacks that spring that kind of all looked the same. I can't even remember all their names, you know, but, and Matt Castle, had, Brandon Hans. Brandon uh, okay, I remember those two. I forget and the I other one. I think there was yeah. a fourth, wasn't there? Yeah, there, I, there, I always thought Castle looked the best uh, that spring and, you know, and, or even in the fall, like leading up to it. And, you know, he had a long NFL career. So, like, I don't feel like, that was a terrible call, right. but, but Matt Leinart was the better one in college for sure. Well, and, and we got the spring game, Matt Leinart gets a call and we're all, you know, what, what was, uh, you know, Norm doing and what's he thinking? And everybody who knew about kind of the inside story said, you know, that Matt Leinart was so good in the quarterback meetings and so on top of what they really wanted him to do. 
And the minute Matt Leinart was named the starter, it's like he became a new person. He just, the guy we were seeing in practice, all of a sudden turned into the guy who was going to win the Heisman, you know, Heisman Trophy. And uh, who knows how that happens. But, but again, we don't, this is where it really is hard to, you know, come down so much for one, one quarterback or another. Uh, if it's really close, because you're not in those quarterback, you know, meetings, and you aren't seeing what they're saying and how they're reacting, and, and, and I mean, we don't even know what play's been called, you know, at practice. So we're kind of guessing as to, you know, the the execution of the quarterback because we're really not seeing what are they, what are they seeing, and what are they expecting him to do. So, uh, so it's hard. That's why some of the, you know, the folks that are on the outside of the program to have, you know, as Ryan said, to plant your flag really that, you know, strongly for one guy or another um, is, is probably not the way to go. I just, let me say that, you know. Yeah, I agree with you there. So we have a question from Daniel from L.A. He says, I understand Ben Griffiths is a great punter, and you all have done good coverage on him. But why is he getting so much coverage still? Has USC dropped that low that we consistently mention a punter? His position is one that we hope to rarely use. If anything, the only kicking that should be mentioned more is field goal. Is the kicker still putting it through the uprights? Those are the points that will matter more. Fight on. So I think that's a, that, that's a mistake if you have the punter who can become a weapon. If, he, if you have a guy that, okay, he can flip the field, you know, if you, if you don't get a first down and uh, you're not going to give the other team really good field position. If you can use him as a weapon, for example, you know, that he's got the, the kind of height and hang time uh, and accuracy where he can pin teams you know, down near their goal line, uh, all of which it looks like Ben can do, uh, I think the other part of it is he's a 27-year-old, you know, uh, who's already finished one pro football career in Aussie rules football um, and who really wants to be a college guy. And, and he's just a whole different persona uh, with him. And, and to see him out there as, the, you know, the holder, and there, there's kind of a – I just think it's like you've got a coach on the field you know, even though he's, I think he's only seen three uh, American football games in his life, but he was a big-time athlete. If you ever look at the highlights of him in Aussie rules football, I mean, you're a kid, almost 6'6", jumps, uh, great hands, you know, tough kid. He's just something USC hasn't had, had for a while where you can turn the, the punting game into a, a, a weapon, you know, for USC. So, you know, I think USC will take any kind of, you know, edge it can get. And uh, you can see, for example, the last couple of years, Utah has had, you know, the All-American punter from Australia. And that makes it tough to play those guys. you got to drive the, you know, the ball the whole field. You know, he's going to flip it if they don't get a first down. And uh, USC hasn't had that luxury. I mean, uh, you know, nobody that could flip the field. I mean, that was not even a thought that USC had a punter that could flip, flip the field. And uh, it makes life a lot more difficult if you're giving teams, uh, you know, good field position. So, so I think, you know, as much as you can say, well, you just assume that, you know, USC hasn't been able to assume that for a while. I mean, uh, Tommy Malone was an All-American in uh, 2003. Uh, 
but since then uh that hasn't just been the, you know been the case where where you had that kind of you know ability uh, to punt the ball and so but I don't disagree about the field goals I think uh we'll see when we get Chase McGrath back uh who I'm assuming will be back from surgery uh so that they'll have three legitimate uh you know field goal uh, candidates and, and that will be interesting to watch once the fall gets here it just wasn't you know a complete uh, competition in the spring so you didn't probably hear as much about it because we're not really sure what what direction uh, you know the field goal kicking is going to go Daniel really interesting it's, you know I don't think it's a complete question because there's some stuff there's some holes in what you're saying but I like the premise of hey why is every like, I get that like why is everyone excited about a punter um, certainly field goal kick is important, but punting is more important than you're giving it, you're making it out to be USC special teams have been God awful and they got a little bit better at the end of last year. So I think when you're looking from a five and seven season, you know, what was bad and you want things to improve. And I think on the special team side, you needed significant improvement, bringing in a 27 year old Aussie punter. I think you get significant pr- improvement in that aspect of the game. And I think he might be good enough where you can't even coach them. Just let them punt. Don't like, well, try to do this, try to do that. Sometimes you've had punters with good legs and they try to coach them to do things. Like, I don't think you want to do that with him. I think you can just kind of let him go out and be him. And it's exciting. Plus when you're out there watching practice, just if you've never gone, you're out there and there's a hundred dudes, you know, and you're like, Oh, what's going to stand out to you. Sometimes, you know, the defensive linemen are so far away. Someone could make an amazing play. You're just nowhere near it to even see it. We get to see him punting right in front of us all the time. And it's like, whoa, boom, boom. So it's something that's going to stick in your brain. So I think there's a lot of reasons why you can see how special of a talent he is. I don't blame the people that are talking about him, like including myself, because he is someone that could change the game for USC. So, uh, yeah, I, I think they needed improvements on special teams, and he's someone that can instantly come in and do that. Like day one, they were doing pooch punting thinking, holy, why would they, you know, and he's kicking the ball to the flag. And he he can kick it to the right flag or the left flag. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You don't often see, you know, a punter that can kind of kick the ball across the field and uh, and down it there. But one of the, the smart things I think they were doing is they were running the cover guys, uh, you know, to cover the kicks. And, uh, and doing it over and over again, you realize, his hang time is such, and his accuracy is such, accuracy is such that you can get five or six cover guys down to the, you know, where you're kicking the ball at the, five, you know, trying to get it, to, you know, come down at the five yard line or wherever, and they're they're already there, and so they're building in this kind of muscle memory to the cover guys that he's going to kick it where we want him to kick it. He's going to kick it up with enough hang time that you're going to be able to get there, and. You know, how many times you see guys with pooch punts where the cover guy, maybe one of them, barely not doesn't quite get there and the ball bounces into the end zone as he's diving at it. That's not what you see with him. You see guys that are down there, you know, they could be signaling fair catches because of the, uh, you know, the hang time, you know, and the accuracy because they know where it's going. Uh, and that they started practicing that day one, that, you know, that's very encouraging to me you know, for John Baxter to realize this guy is that kind of weapon and we just have to put it in everybody's head how we're going to do these things. And uh, those are the kinds of things that pay off when you get to games where everybody kind of understands 
we're going to be able to do this. We're going to do it. And this is what we have to do to, you know, to cover those kicks. So uh, it's a different, it, he's different and it's different the way, uh, way it's happening with him. So it's worth noting. And I think one of the things we ought to hopefully get you guys used to a little bit in coverage is if we kind of focus on something like that and, and really, you know, hit on it, hit on it, hit on it, that means it's different. It's, it's, it's in a different place. It's, it's not what you've been used to and it matters, you know, that, that we try to be relevant, you know, that this is, this is going to matter because, and, uh, and so, so trust us, I think on some of those things, I think, you know, in terms of being able to remember how it's been for a while and how that doesn't look like it's going to be the way it is this year. That's what I was going to say is we're the context also matters. We're coming off of a couple seasons. Last season, USC averaged 38 yards per punt. That's just not, it's just not good. It wasn't even like punting was a neutral factor for USC. It was a, a negative factor where they'd punt and you'd kind of be like, ooh, okay. Yeah. That doesn't really help. Either you defense. start at the 50 and you can't pin them in the 20 or you're at your own 20 and you can't get it past the 50. It was weird. Like you just couldn't. Whatever the job was, it wasn't really getting executed. Yeah, and so I or think, if, or if you got a deep punt, they often didn't cover. You know, they didn't because they weren't used to it. Oh, yeah. That wasn't what they normally. Yeah. And so you have the Arizona State game where Nikhil Harry, you know, takes it back, and uh, you know, just it, we think we're past that. But you know, again, I think Kelly, you're exactly right. Uh, context matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we have one final question, and it's our friend from the pod, Dan, class of 1962. He says, there have been a news report that both Stanford and Yale have penalized the students involved in the cheating scandal by expelling them from the school if they are currently attending and withdrawing any diploma that may have been received, as well as removing their classes and grades from school records. The administration's applications for both schools note that falsifying anything on the mission's application is grounds for removal from all university records. Does USC have the same admissions policy? It would not matter if the student were aware of the falsification, but just the fact that it was falsified and the student attested to the admissions document. Also, if any of the cheating was money was funneled into the athletic accounts, as been intimated, will that money be sent back to the so-called donor or given to some kind of charity that serves underprivileged children by the university? We will soon see if the USC administration is about money or ethical admission standards. If the students involved should not have been admitted to USC in the first place, they should take their lumps and get their education where it, where it has been earned and not bought. Dan, class of 1962. Wow. Uh, you know, I think those are questions that, uh, you know, the new president has to be asking. Uh, I don't think we know the answers. I think legally, I think a school has to have it in its policy that uh, the specifics of what will constitute, you know, grounds for, uh, you know, removing a diploma and all of that. I mean, I think, you know, and I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but if, if a kid is admitted who doesn't know anything about any, you know, cheating, and, and I'm not even sure if you can say, I mean, let's face it, a lot of the admissions are subjective. Obviously, if you can get a kid in because you say, oh, they're interested in crew, and that is a determining factor over somebody who doesn't have that, um, obviously you would think that the test scores and all that can't be that uh, that different uh, for sports like that. So I don't know if you can just 
and then they go through and they do fine in school and they do all their courses and they, you know, they pass with, you know, flying colors and all that kind of thing. Can you go back and take their diploma away? I don't know if you can do that. I, I mean, that would be me. Uh, you know, you wish probably, I know they, who was it? Alan Dershowitz was, uh, uh, the Harvard law professor was talking on uh, on college the other day, and he said you couldn't do that when he was starting college because if you got into if you you know your parents or you got you know cheated your way into Harvard, he said you're gonna flunk out. He said now, and he's still teaching. He said nobody flunks out, so if you get in, you're good to go. Uh, that might be on the colleges, uh, you know, to some extent, but. Uh, but I think you had to be on pretty solid legal grounds before you could like erase four years of some uh, unknowing kid's life had after he's gone through and he or she has gone through all of the coursework and uh, and done well. Uh, I think that that would be a little that would be a little tough. I, you'd like to come down really hard on the people who who did the cheating uh, and you know circumvented the system. You'd also probably like to come down on the people who set up a system that could be so easily circumvented. Uh, that's not, that's not a good thing. Um, so, but I, I think USC has to ask all those questions and then decide, you know, what the right answer is. I'm not sure just automatically, uh, you know, bouncing them all, especially if they've already gotten their diplomas. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd agree with that. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one for me too. But if there was a policy where, uh, things were falsified in the admissions process, then I, you, I think that's the only legal way you could do it. Um, Stanford and Yale, according to Dan, a class of 1962, they have those uh, stipulations uh, in their policy. So I guess, you know, that would be the case. I haven't heard that with the USC, to be honest. I just really haven't paid a whole lot of attention to, oh, they plead not guilty to this. But I'm just kind of like, I don't want to get caught up in the minutiae of all this stuff. It's terrible. I know that UCLA, there was another story where it goes back further, where, you know, there was sort of like a, you know, more people getting in for, you know, different reasons. And I, I think stuff like this happened probably even more than we knew. I think this was just a scheme where uh, Rick Singer, uh, you know, organized it and, and it made, you know, profited off of it. Like, I think this was probably happening every once in a while. Like, oh, you know, we have an extra walk-on spot. This guy's a friend of a friend. We'll get him in. Or, I mean, I, I think probably we saw there was more of that stuff happening but to this level where it's that organized and you're giving money to charity and writing it off and all the, I mean, all the illegal stuff is, is bad. And USC is a private institution and they can do a lot of stuff for what, you know, what you want to do. Obviously not this where you're falsifying documents and, and you know, writing off money for, that's supposed to go to charity that's bull and all that stuff. So, Dan, I don't know, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll probably get more. Uh, from the the new president or whenever you know that USC releases more information, but like for right now, it's just been kind of quiet on that front. I think. Yeah, it's been really quiet at USC. I don't think, boy, I mean, nothing has come out. So uh, these are good questions, uh, and and I'm not totally opposed to. And I think it's been kind of a case at USC, you know, for legacy admissions. Like you know, if your family gave a you know a building to USC, I don't, you know, if you're close to being as good as anybody else, I, you know, I take you. Uh, and, and I, we, you know, they evaluate so many different things in in so many different ways, you know, in terms of, um, you know, your extracurricular activities and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, there, there's some, you know, legal questions as to 
what is allowed to be weighed and what isn't allowed to be weighed. And, you know, in private institutions, again, uh, they've got some, you know, freedom and there's whole, the whole, you know, diversity issues and all kinds of things like that, that, that are just, uh, uh, you know, people could argue about them. Uh, what you don't want is a, a system where people can game it and can game it by, you know, and you could say, well, they gamed it by giving, you know, $50 million for that, you know, that building. Uh, well, I think <laughs> if you're USC, you can say, if you want to game us, game us at that level. Don't game us at, you know, the next level. And, and, and the benefits have to be to USC, not to people who were involved in gaming the system. That's where, you know, you just can't allow that obviously. And, and USC needed to do a better job. There had to be uh, that there wasn't any follow-up for all of the people who were given um, uh, additional admissions credits for extracurricular activities like athletics. You had to be following up. If you, if you allowed someone in because they were, in, you know, a crew possible athlete and they, they didn't show up for crew, you got to follow up and say, why weren't they? Or all the other sports, uh, you know, for everybody that got extra, extra credit for any kind of athletic activity, uh, there had to be follow-up. And apparently there wasn't any follow-up. I think at UCLA, the one girl that we knew about in uh, soccer, there was follow-up. And, and the rule at UCLA was if you got in, uh, uh, you know, got credit for being, you know, potential walk-on, you had to walk on and you had to be involved with the program. And I think the story was they gave her like number 99 and they put her in a different part of the media guide, but she had to keep showing up. She had to go to practice and all that, even though maybe she really wasn't, uh, you know, a candidate uh, to be a player. Uh, but I, I don't know that, that those things existed at USC and they probably needed to. You couldn't, you shouldn't have had people disappearing after they'd gotten credits to get admitted uh, and they never did show up for, uh, for practice. And the idea that, that those could be put into the system without the coaches even knowing about it uh, is just, it's kind of mind boggling that, that that kind of a system existed for USC. And, and I'm, I'm shocked that the coaches w would put up for not really knowing who was being submitted and, you know, for their sport. I mean, it just seems, you know, so USC probably contributed some of that. So I think it'd be hard to come down on the on the kids if the university also probably played a hand in and uh, and what happened and allowed it to happen. Yeah, I think for USC specifically, that's a good point, Dan. Where at UCLA, if you're a, a soccer player. Um, and you know that you have to go to some practices and you're not as good as everybody else, you know that you got in because of that and you're just kind of uh, keep keeping up a facade where you're like the student at USC who his guidance counselor asked, asked him, oh, you're on the track team. And he's like, no, I'm not on the track team. Like he had no idea. Uh, then, you know, I think there's a little more leeway there. But that shows there's more of a systematic problem at USC because you could get that kind of stuff through. I mean, I talked to some people, you know, inside the football program and they would submit names to Donna Heinel, like, Hey, these are walk-ons that we want to get through. And they didn't get a lot of feedback. They would get, say, if they gave five names, 
they might get four in. And that was it. Like, that's all they knew. So it was sort of like, sorry, you have to tell the fifth guy, sorry. And, you know, to this day, I don't think they know if that guy, the fifth guy didn't get in, was it because she was getting someone else in and getting paid for it? You know, so that's, I mean, obviously that's a huge problem, but I have, I have a little more sympathetic towards the students at USC because it was more of a administrator involved and parents involved. I think in a lot of the cases than the student themselves where, you know, other places you had to keep up this facade for whatever reason, USC didn't have any kind of checks and balances. And it allowed that to, to go on where you could dupe a student into not even knowing that they got in because of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the track kid, he was a pole vaulter. Uh, apparently they told him, which is like, <laughs> that would be like the least choice. It's like the most technique heavy sport. You can't just make somebody a pole. You might say, Oh, they're a swimmer or they're, a, you know, or they can, you know, row a boat, but to make somebody a pole vaulter, I mean, come on. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. Uh, and it, so USC, I think it would be really hard for USC to come down exceedingly tough on these kids after USC. You know, it couldn't have happened had USC been really vigilant, and USC clearly wasn't. And, and USC had an administrator involved in the process. Again, it would be harder for USC to say we were duped. And, and if you were, you know, somebody who loses your degree – you got to be thinking, I'm going to sue them because they duped me. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, that would not be in a position you would think USC wants to be in. Yeah. Keely, were you, uh, were you on the uh, crew team or something? Is that what was going on? Yeah, I was on every uh, team. <laughs> all of them. They put me on all of them. That's why I was so busy in college. It's, I mean, but there's a lot of people you feel bad because like, there's some people that don't, didn't get in. Like when I got in, it wasn't as hard. So I got in whatever in the fall, but there's people that go through, they transfer in, they go or a spring admittance and things like that. Um, you know, Keely, you know, pointing herself, you know, one spring of those things, admit, what's up? um, but yeah, if you want to get in like, you know, in the fall and this was a way to do it, it's just like, man, you, cause all these other people that would have, could have got in, you know, maybe you got in except someone else, you know, yeah, took your knows. spot. You know, it's hard to say. Weird. Yeah. Keely would have got in. I don't know why. How could Keely not yeah, get in? You know, yeah. you don't yeah. know why I'm on I'm this podcast. You don't know why I got into USC, Ryan. No, I'm just right. <laughs> I mean, really, I think the uh, kids that get in, that have a special talent, you know, let's say the Annenberg, you know, kids that, uh, you know, I think they're probably, uh, you know, as valuable to USC as, uh, you know, as a, you know, backup uh, coxswain you know, on the crew team. Uh, so, and again, you know, they may need to take a look at where do the preferences go and why do they go there and how much of a preference do you get? And, and I think you're probably going to get more preference, say in football or basketball. It's just, yeah. that's just the way it works. But, uh, but I, I it just, let's just say this: when they set it up for next year, it ain't going to look anything like it looked like this year. Yeah. It's just, not this is not going to happen again, and uh, it was just too easy to game. Uh, I, you, you know, you got to give the guy in Newport Beach credit; he figured it out. And, yeah, he uh, game the system. He, he went right there. But it's it's weird because it's such a, such a subjective process. It's like you know, you go to a hot Hollywood club and they're letting people in, you know, that are further back in the line. Like, oh, what's you know, why is that? And it's hard to say. Well, okay, we want to make it standard. But then, like, okay, now it's all standardized tests and things, and that's gonna that's gonna upset people. Like, oh, it's not fair for certain whatever. 
Um, there's always going to be some subjectivity to it. And if there's that, then there's ways to game the system, you yeah. know, like this yeah. was pretty bad way to game the system. So you kind of, kind of eliminate that. Uh, but I agree with you, Dan, like if some guy's going to, you know, if I'm running a business and, you know, I'm, and the university is my business and there's this, you know, $50 million donor and his kid wants to get in, it's like, it's probably better for the university as a whole to let that kid in, you know, um, because you might get more money from, so you, you make your whole university better by letting one kid in. Now, if you had to let like 12 kids in for that, like, oh, maybe not, but like, this is, you know, we're one big donor, like all that stuff makes sense, but it's so subjective. And then where do you draw the line? I know there's going to be people because of the, the age we live in, that's going to be like, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's like, but I don't know how you, I don't college admissions. How do you make it? So it's not subjective. You know, some guys, you know, a piano tutor and he volunteers and does this and, you know, maybe his grades aren't as good, but you're like, you know, that gets him in over the top. Um, but it's, it's such a weird process. And now there's been a little bit more light exposed on it. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, a lot of protests, complaints and things like that going forward. No, they just can't do it the way they've been doing it. But, uh, uh, yeah, there's no way to avoid the subjectivity. Uh, it just has to be as fair as you can make it and as transparent as you can make it. And it wasn't either of those. And yeah. that's where it, you, it came, because, you know, I mean, when you get the number, what was it? Is it down to 11% uh, of applicants yeah, or is it now? I yeah. mean, come on. Uh, you know, USC was in the perfect place. You know, it, it has really moved up the, uh, uh, you know, the rankings academically and it's in, you know, obviously it's in Los Angeles and with all the, the kinds of people that are, you know, around. And it's always been kind of a place where, you know, celebrity kids, you know, went to school. And now that it's, uh, you know, ranked as highly as it is in so many ways, and you, know, you just look at it, you just think, well, yeah, I could see people wanting to send, send their kid here. And then if they, you know, find out, well, maybe they can't, but if. USC was probably, of all the targets in the country, I guess USC was the number one target, obviously, and it turned out to be the number one target. I mean, if you had to, you know, scheme and say, I wonder what school is most vulnerable for something like this, it's USC. I don't, <laughs> yeah. It's not even a question. I mean, it's going to be USC, which proved to be the case. And uh, so uh, maybe USC needed to realize that they were potentially that school, you know, for example, and we won't know the numbers, but if you wanted to know something, how many kids got into USC who had letters in their file saying that they were, uh, um, you know, had a learning disability, which required them to take the test untimed. Now, if that number was, let's say, higher than, say, other places, or higher than the, the norm, you might start thinking, huh, I wonder if something's going on here. I wonder why these kids that are, are otherwise qualified for USC were, all, were asking to be able to take untimed tests. I think you could take them home and do them. Uh, that, was, that would have been, you know, that should have raised some, uh, you know, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. And I don't know if, if there was enough of that awareness of, of, of what was happening, uh, you know, and I don't even know what the rules are in terms of the, the, the test taking companies. Are they required to, uh, tell the school or, or not tell the school? And if that's not, you know, if they aren't, then that's also kind of an issue somewhere that somebody 
should have maybe spotted the fact that, that there were more of those uh, safer people want, wanting to go to USC than, than, than you would have thought. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about the exclusivity of only admitting 11% of applicants in the fall, um, if you're at school that you're admitting 40%, like who cares? But when it's that tight and you're turning away valedictorians with like perfect SAT scores or whatever, then there's just, I mean, then the subjectivity goes to a whole nother level. And it's almost like you're, the last team's getting into the NCAA tournament. Like you're going to look at the last four in, the last four out, and the you know comparing the committee resumes and stuff. Um, there's going to be a lot of like really good resumes that are like, hey, why is this person not getting in? Um, so yeah, it's it's a weird thing. I mean, I don't I, I don't have any really interest in this college athletic admissions process, but, but man, there's it's going to be uh, it's going to be an issue that people are going to be debating for a while. I think. Speaking of the NCAA admi- uh, admissions, um, the people that ought to be unhappy are the ones who. When they USC looked at them, they looked at them like, "Oh, you're from the Pac-12, eh? You're not getting in." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the Pac-12, the gift that keeps on giving. All right, I guess we should probably wrap this up. Um, real quick, uh, shameless plug. I am riding. This is for charity. This isn't like plugging really a, a thing. So it's called the Tour de Pier. It's in Manhattan Beach. It's basically this big outdoor cycling class, 400 stationary bikes uh, on the pier. Clay Helton and uh, and Jake Olson are going to be a part of this. They've been doing it the last couple of years. This is my first year actually riding in it. I've been taking uh, spin classes uh, the last couple of months, kind of getting ready. But if you just Google Tour, my, I have a page up there, Tour de Pier. If Google Tour de Pier, Tour, T-O-U-R-D-E-P-I-E-R. Just put my name, Ryan Abraham. You'll come to my page, so please leave a little donation. Uh, it's to fight cancer, so this is a big, uh, you know, cancer uh, anti. It's not pro cancer; it's anti-cancer ride, uh, raising a lot of money for cancer research and stuff. So I'd appreciate you if you, you know, you don't really. The, the show's free. If you want to do a little donation for a charity I'm supporting right now, that would be awesome. Tour to Pier, and then just search. For they do me. mileage. Is that how you how you you make the make the money? Is the pledge is according to how many miles you ride? No, it's uh, so it's basically like a big spin class for all these people. So if you've ever done one, there's like an instructor up up the front. I've never done one until you know those last few months, um, and they're you know they're instructing what you do on the bike. So you you're changing the resistance on the bike to simulate going uphill downhill. So it's sort of like you know. I don't want to say aerobics, but it's like an aerobics class. Everyone's doing the same thing. The, the instructor's up there saying, all right, here we go. You know, it's, uh, to, it's to music. And you're like, ride, you know, medium pace, just hands and ride. just your kind of regular riding. And then like, okay, we're getting to a hill. And they would like, you know, turn up the the resistance. And then you stand up and you're you're pedaling. And they'll like, okay, crank the resistance up more. And they'll, they'll kind of tell you what to do. Or racing where you're like, okay, you're going as fast as you can in a certain resistance um, so they're kind of do that. So everyone follows that. I, I forget how many hours it is, but there's five of us on a team. It might be five hours. We might need to do an hour or something like that. But, um, you're basically doing this class with following the instructor up at the, on the stage and Clay Helton's up there sometimes, but they have like my instructor that I take at 24 hour fitness. She's going to be one of the, the instructors up there, but they'll, they'll cycle through and people have different playlists and different things you can do. So it, it's, it's pretty fun. It's a gr- great workout, man. I sweat my I sweat everything off when I'm in there. I, I well, was, how do they? How does the pledge work? That you pledge 
How much for how much? Oh, you just pledge. Yeah, yeah. Just donate to the team. So there's no like. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like, not when, like you have to go 100 miles and you get 100. No, you know, no, whatever. no. It's no. not. Yeah, okay. it's just for the team. So you're just donating. Um, we okay. all have like a goal. I think our goals are like, 50, yeah, I don't know. We have goals to like what we have to raise. So I think I'm at 61 percent of my goals so far. So if any Peristyle podcast listeners out there want to contribute, that would be awesome. Cool. Good job, oh, Ryan. Good. Thanks. Well, good try. I was there at six in the morning this morning doing the. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That was yesterday morning. Tomorrow morning. I do what Monday, Wednesday, six a.m. classes. It's like brutal. Uh, I don't know. You choose to do this, right? I do. I'm like I'm. <laughs> I'm getting up to go to this class and shotguns like going to bed. So it's funny. Pretty huh? much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Complete opposite <laughs> schedules. <laughs> yeah, I thought they were actual bikes that you guys were riding on, the, you know, out on the pier. I was thinking, gosh, I wonder if anybody falls in. That, <laughs> that, that would be or... tough. I think they have to source <laughs> bikes from gyms all around because there's 400 stationary bikes. Yeah. You know? So they have to get all the gyms locally. They'll bring the bikes out there. But it's a really big event. Are you on the pier or are you still on the on the shore? Uh, you're on like looking at the so pier at uh, Manhattan Beach Boulevard, so right at the base of the pier. So the base of the pier is okay. where like the stage is and everything. And my buddy okay. John is a Inglewood uh, police officer, and his mother passed away from cancer recently. So that's what you know we're kind of riding for for her and stuff. But everyone, you know, everyone's been touched by cancer. Uh, you know, everyone. It's just hard not to be. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it should be fun. Fun stuff. I don't know. Sounds good. Good job. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Peristyle Podcast. And uh, thanks to Trader Joe's. And if you happen to donate to my Tour de Pier team, that would be awesome, too. Thanks for that. Keely, Dan, I'm Ryan. Thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices, every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 